Sure. Now you're going to quote scripture and you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's true. Well then if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, am I saved? Not necessarily. I don't know how you believe. Devil believe. I'm not saying. John chapter 8, Christ said to those disciples who believed on him, he are the apostle of the devil and he sees you above. Somebody asked me one time in a Greek class, why didn't God give us two words for believe? One where you really believe and you're saved, and one where you just think you believe and you're not. Well, he didn't. It's pistuo in both cases. And you can be a disciple who believed on him and be of your father with him. What's that? I didn't say. I didn't write. Criticize me. There has to be with belief, saving belief and identification with Christ. Does his spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? And you're identified with Christ? That identification may not be there. I don't know what you believe. I don't know how you believe. What must I do to be saved? Well, my answer is always nothing. I don't know what my brother answered. I sat in a conference, something like this, and somebody says, now the trouble with Arthur is he doesn't understand the cross and resurrection. Because there are two questions in the scriptures. What must I do to be saved? One was asked by a rich young ruler. The other was asked by an Ethiopian or a Philippian jailer. And they got two different answers. And why were the answers different? Because of the cross. And I had to raise my hand again, and I said, oh, wait a minute. They weren't even the same question. Rich young ruler did not say, what must I do to be saved? He sure did. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He already assumed he was a member of the family. You don't inherit from Marv unless you're his kid. The rich young ruler did not say, what must I do to be saved? He said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And inheritance assumed that he was already God's child. Hey, Lord, I already know I'm God's child. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Inheritance was the wrong word, so Christ told him so. Got the same answer. Christ gave the rich young ruler the same answer I give him today. And there wasn't any change in time between those questions. Philippian jailer asked something different. The rich young ruler came believing he was a son and identified with God and asked for an inheritance. The Philippian jailer came realizing that he was a sinner and that he needed a savior because God by grace had spoken to him that he was a sinner. And he wanted to know what he should do to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And what works for you works for your house. But when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're identified with Christ. And so we're told in Acts 2 that we're to change our mind and we're to allow ourselves to be identified with Christ. Passive voice. That's the first command. The next case, I'm going to run out of time here, so three verses I want to look at with you in Acts. The next one's Acts 8, 16. For yet the Holy Spirit had fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. No, that word there is a perfect fancy particle. Perfect tense in the Greek speaks of an action which was complete in past time with the result that it now stands complete. And that, boy, you know, if you want me to preach, I've got to preach on forgiveness. Be baptized for the remission of sin. Be baptized, your sins will be forgiven. We'll see that, for example, well, we'll go into that just a little bit later on. You've got to understand forgiveness in the scriptures. And every time you read the word forgiveness, it isn't the word forgiveness. And until you know that, you're in a lot of problems. Has he forgiven you all trespasses? Anybody here believe he has? How come you have to confess to be forgiven? The same thing's true of baptism. When you're identified with Christ, that identification carries with it a leaving of sin. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Here they were identified in the name of the Lord Jesus. But it's a perfect passage. It's completely done in past time. They didn't have anything to do with it. Not active voice, passive voice. They didn't have anything to do with it. It was done by an operator, and the obvious operator, if you look at the white spaces, was God. And it's perfect tense. God did it in past time with the result that it is now completely done and stands done. All he needs is the Holy Spirit. It'd be very similar if you had lived in 1776 up in the mountains and somebody trudges up there in 1780 and says, Hey, you're a citizen of the United States. I am. What happened to King George or whoever it was? Oh, haven't you heard? Man, the revolution's over. You're a citizen of the United States. You just have to be here. Now, your children don't have that problem. They're born in the United States. They don't have a problem with citizenship. But here's a great change. A fabulous change. All of a sudden, God, in the person of his son, has fulfilled the law. And now we need to be identified with that sacrifice that carries with it all of the requirements of the law. No longer do I have any rules and regulations in my life with God. No longer is my fellowship contingent upon offering sacrifices. There's one sacrifice which now allows the leaving of sin. 
didn't get saved by offering those sacrifices. That's where you lack the sin. That's what we call confession. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, believe in thy heart that God hath raised him to death. Thou shalt be saved. And then we get into 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. But that's epia in the Greek. It's the word that's almost always translated leave. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. That's the word epias or epia. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to leave them. But forgive them? He's already done that. Charizomai. The root from which we get cast graves. God has already forgiven you all trespasses. That's perfect tense in the Greek. is isn't something he's doing. Don't ever go to God and say, please forgive my sin. Don't you do that. He already has. And to ask him to do it is to say he hasn't done it. And that's to call God a liar. He has done it. And when God ever speaks of gracious forgiveness of your sins, it's charizomai. But when he talks about the burden of sin that bears down your testimony and destroys the spiritual vitality of your life, then you need to sacrifice, just like you did in the old covenant. Only that's Christ. And now your sins are left. And we'll see that in Acts 22. It's the last verse I want to look at. I'm probably already out of time. Did you start lying with me? No. We'll lay his watch out. going to have all the time you And now why carriest thou rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Now the word be baptized there is the only other case in all of the scriptures where baptizo occurs as a command. It's an aorist imperative passage. And now why carriest thou arise and allow thyself to be identified or be baptized? If you want to make that water, then I need water to be saved. It's an aorist passage imperative. It's a command. Allow yourself to be identified and wash away. That's an aorist passage. Now if I tell you to wash, that's an English command. But you see, it again has the active passive problem. Do I mean to wash yourself, or do, you, do I mean to let mother wash behind your ears? Or something? And wash is another one of those words that can be active or passive. So is it in the Greek. Sometimes this word appears in the active. Sometimes it occurs in the passive. It's passive here. Allow yourself to be identified. Allow yourself to be washed. You don't wash yourself. God's faithful and just to do that. To wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Once again, I am contending, if that's what I'm doing, and I sure don't want to be contentious, that baptizo here as a command is again the coming under the control of the influence of the Lord Jesus Christ, being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to portray that by a mode, fine. I have no argument with you there. It's not a command. The mode's not the command. The spiritual truth is what is important. Are you identified with Christ? Are you under his control? Those things sound so childish, and yet I find most Christians don't understand. They really don't understand. They're willing to live for the Lord until the scriptures read on what they want to do. Adultery is wrong for everybody until you fall in love with another woman beside your wife, and then you begin to rationalize. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest. The first one's adultery. Fornication, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance. Regulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, endings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. You ought to learn that list, because that list reads on everything you do. Now, are you really, really willing to be identified with Christ? Do you present yourself to Christ identified with him? Yes, Master. No, Master. What do you want me to do there? Well, I know, Lord, you said to let all wrath, anger, clamor, bitterness, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, but you don't understand, Paul, huh? I'm sick and tired of his prayers falling on my wall. What do you want me to do, Lord? Be kind to him. No, Lord. I'm going to go and tell him what I think. I'm not trying to be funny, but that's where it works in your life. Who is the real one identified with Christ? One walks in the light of the Word. You walk in the light of the Word? Sure do, until it reads on your path. Then do you? I'm not saying you don't, but I'm saying if you do, you know a life of tribulation. You know a life of suffering. For unto you it has been on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on you, but also to suffer for his name's sake. That's true identification with the Lord. And allow it to happen. That's why it's a passive voice. God does the identifying with you, or, or of you to him, so that it's his work in your life. You can stand in his way, I agree. You can be a child of disobedience. You can lose all semblance of spiritual vitality and energy in your life. Sure can. If I could close with one illustration, there's David. <coughs> David did not ask God to appoint him king over Israel. He didn't. And he wasn't looking for it. And God dug, dug him out and called him in and said, You're king over Israel. 
Now, if God came to me right now, I'd say, Goodbye, Marv. Glad to have met your brother Stan. Good to see you again, Davis, but I'm headed for Washington. I'd go sell my home. Honey, where are you going? Well, I'm going to Washington. God says I'm president of the city. David did this. No effort to get the kingdom. When he had a chance to kill Saul, he didn't do that. Twice he said, I'll not raise my hand against God's anointed. He was finally driven out of his homeland. He hid in the caves, and all the criminals of society came around him. King of Israel. Finally had to leave Israel and he lived with the Philistines. But he believed God. And God worked in his life until the scriptures tell me that David perceived that God had indeed kept his word and given him the kingdom. And all of a sudden, he lusted after another woman and he killed her husband. If you'd let me read the white spaces, David must have said, Me? Not me. I am the man after God's own heart. Can't be me. Well, and I'm persuaded that the Lord will drive every one of you someday where you cry for that peace you once knew, where you cry for that identification. Sure, you have a, a part in being identified. That's why it's a panic. Allow yourself to be identified. And God will drive you down until you cry for it again. And that's why I think it's so imperative that you not become contentious or split over the mood of water baptism when the Holy Spirit is so desperately concerned about your spiritual identification with Christ. Not the fact that you're saved, but that you're identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Um, Brother Crawford, I would ask you to just uh, elaborate a little bit more on the point that you made, because I could tell from the reaction of people must have been the noon meal or something, a little bit drowsy, but I think it went right over the heads of some of them. Would you uh, uh, clarify a little bit your interpretation of 1 Corinthians 1.17? Paul said, uh, oh, okay. God me not to baptize, because I, I don't think many of them saw the relationship you were making to the spirit baptism. Right. I actually all care. I'm going to start to preach to you on the marks of carnality that are outlined in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Now, one of those marks of carnality <laughs> is identification. I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos. Hey, I am of Christ. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. They were identifying into groups. Now, Paul says, I thank God, I baptize none of you. And he said that right after they were claiming some of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, some of Christ. And he goes on to say, I thank God, I baptize none of you. Now, that's what I was saying to you is that it's almost inconceivable to me that he's talking about water baptism. Because he would have known that, hey, I baptized a whole mess of you. Now, he does name Crispus Gaius in the household of Stephanus. I agree. But he says, and if I baptize any other of you, I don't know. Now, I'm not saying that he needed a list of the roster of those he baptized, although a lot of pastors keep that list, and maybe there's some reason for doing it. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, surely he would have known that they had a baptismal service with a hundred. And he would have said, well, I don't know who they were, but remember, we baptized about a hundred. He didn't do that. Why? Because what he's talking about there is spiritual identification, not the mode of water baptism. He isn't talking about the fact that I thank God I didn't water baptize any of you. He's saying, I thank God that I did identify you with Christ so that you can claim your identification with Christ is through Paul. There's a lot of people doing that today. Well, I was saved under Billy Graham or Dwight L. Moody or... Sanka, or, no, that's coffee. <laughs> what Paul is saying is you can't identify with me because I didn't identify you. Now, I think there are a tremendous number of ministers who are all wrapped up in statistics. How many people did you lead the Christ? And I've been in meeting after meeting. How many somebody led the Christ this week? I've never raised my hand. I've never led anybody to Christ that I know. Now, I agree that there are certain verses of Scripture, if you read them carefully, you might think you ought to lead people to Christ. I can't. <coughs> The Holy Spirit may do it through I waste no time identifying. When I get to glory, if somebody says they were led to Christ through my ministry, it has to be by the Holy Spirit, not me. Holy Spirit, I don't know anybody. And I'm not going to go down to Lexington, Kentucky, and tell you, man, we had a marvelous meeting last night. 1,100 people came up and accepted Christ. I wouldn't know it if 1,100 did. If I'm not going to do it. That's what Paul said. He says, I was not dealing with you in such a way that I could identify you with Jesus Christ. I was preaching the word. And I let the Holy Spirit do the identifying. Now, my brethren may take that as water baptism. I wouldn't argue with that at all. I'm saying I don't see it as water baptism. First of all, if it were water baptism, Paul's making it more important than he should. 
Secondly, if it's water baptism, it's amazing that he doesn't remember the baptismal services that must have been held in court. What he's saying is that I came to preach the word, not to get converts. And if we had the rest of the hour, I'll take you to 50 passages of Scripture that indicate the true minister of the things of Christ is not interested in converts. He's in interested in presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Read the, the, uh, the results. That's what Paul's going to say just a little bit later on. You know, Paul is a polished water, somebody else sowed, and, and God gave the increase. It was me. I didn't look for the increase. I left that with the Lord. And it's that verse which makes me even more persuaded that he's talking about spiritual identification with Christ in chapter 1 rather than a mode of water baptism. Fine, I think that's clear. Yes. Well, I did make mention of the fact that he thought the household of Stephanus was possibly Stephen. Uh, Stephen's household. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to back that up at all? No, it just sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you'll uh, you'll have an opportunity for questions uh, as soon as we hear from Mr. Stam. But secondly, we're going to hear from Mr. Croft or uh, Mr. Davis. This morning he was last and. No, this afternoon, why he's, he's second. That's in scripture, isn't it? The last one on verse. That's right. The order is out of order. The last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's out of order. All right. Brother Davis. All right, sir. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to give the same emphasis I gave this morning. Uh, I'm not here to argue or to debate. I'm here simply to state my faith. And I'm very glad for the opportunity to state it. Now, uh, uh, I want to say this, hearkening back to what Brother Crawford has said, as a Baptist preacher, I have the same emphasis that he has just given in his statement of explanation as requested by our moderator. My emphasis is not upon how many converts I can get or how many people I can count. I've never done that in 40 years in the Lord's work. My emphasis is upon getting people into the Word and into the understanding of the things of God. Then Brother Crawford referred to the fact that there were two experts here and he was not one. I denounced the thought of my being an expert. A long time ago, someone gave me a definition. X is an unknown quantity and a spurt is a drip under pressure and I claim to be neither. <laughs> now, uh, the, part, the place where Brother Crawford and I would part is I believe in all of these areas, or not every area. For instance, uh, uh, one of the deacons in our church in Cleveland in, uh, oh, years ago, because I've been in Columbus for 14, he came into the morning service incensed at the late Dr. Charles Fuller. Dr. Fuller had said uh, at that time in his radio broadcast, there's not a drop of water in Romans 6. And my poor deacon was so poor, so upset he could hardly see straight. And he came in and he told me that and he got very upset at his pastor. I said, he's right. There's not a drop of water in Romans 6 or Colossians 2 for that reason. In that matter either. But I do see water in some of the areas that have already been discussed by our brother. And with that background, I'd like to turn to Acts chapter 9 and verse 6 as a takeoff point. And we read, and of course this is Saul, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. It shall be told thee what thou must do. Now furthermore, in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, we read further of the Lord's word, and the Lord said unto him, this is Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear, and that's to bear as a burden, my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. Now, following through on that, I want first of all to note, and of course I am going a little contra here to what I'm saying, that the early church baptized, the apostles and the early church. You'll find that in Acts 4.12, you'll find it in verse 16, you'll find it in 36 and 38, you'll find it in 10.47 and 48, you'll find it in 16.15, you'll find it in 16.33, and you'll find it also in... Uh, 18.8, and this, by the way, is Christmas, and you'll find it in 19.1-5. And, of course, Paul was baptized, Acts 9.18 and 22.16. Also, he baptized others, obviously, 1 Corinthians 1.14, he testifies to that fact. 
Acts 16:15, and uh, verse 33, 18:8 and 19:1 to 5. Also, he was involved there. Now, in some of the things I've heard over the years, where folks have committed the churches I've pastored who did not agree or believe with baptism by immersion. They'd say, yes, Paul was baptized. I can see that clearly. He baptized others. And they'll say, he also circumcised Timothy. Now, maybe my explanation that uh, I have for this is a way off base, and I'd like to hear some comment later on if the Lord so leads. Uh, I find also that they say he also took a Jewish vow, if you look at Acts 18, 18, and 21, 25 to 26. But now for my own thinking, and this is my statement of faith, these things are clearly explained in the scriptures. In, Acts cha- in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, in the 10th chapter of Romans, at verse 1, the apostle said that he was willing to be accursed from Christ, that his kinsmen, his brethren, according to the flesh, might be saved. Now, that's, I think that would explain the circumcision. I think that would explain his taking the Jewish vow and a lot of other things he did. Also in 1 Corinthians 9, he said he had become all things to all men that he might save some. But now, when there was a point of issue, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when the Judaizers came on the scene and said, now look, circumcision's involved here, he withstood them and would not permit Titus to be circumcised. So, given a certain issue, he would forbid it and refrain from it. If you're not given that issue, he would proceed to it. Then the second chapter of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 47, is interesting to me. Just a brief comment. A careful reading of this chapter will reveal that these are Jews preaching to Jews. Verses 1 to 11. That's number one. Number two, in verses 22 to 24, we learn, as we look at 1 Corinthians 2, 7, 8, under the jurisdiction of Rome, it was the Jews who demanded the crucifixion of Christ. Now, this was a public act. They publicly demand his crucifixion, and Rome publicly crucified him. Therefore, when you come down to these other verses, Acts 2, 36 and on, God hath made the same Jesus, both Lord and Christ. When they that gladly received his word, in verse 41, the first part of the verse, were baptized. Now, what word was it that they received? Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Now, why was this necessary after we get out of kingdom of heaven age, as I see it, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because you had had a public repudiation, rejection of Jesus Christ, now there must be a public acknowledgement of him. That's the way I see that particular passage. Now, also in the verse, in verse 38 of Acts 2, we read, Be baptized in the name of Jesus for... Now, what little I understand about the Greek teaches me that that is with a view to remission of sins. And I am sure that everyone on this panel will agree that the only way that sin is ever going to be remitted is through identity with Jesus Christ. And that's where a brother who preceded uh, myself and I come very close together. Now, when you come to the matter of uh, John's baptism, which we considered this morning in the Gospels, in Acts 1, 22, 1 and 20, 21 and 22, people had already had the Spirit of God breathed upon them in Genesis or Luke uh, 21. In Acts 10, 34 to 38. In Acts 13, 30, 23 to 25. 18, 24 to 26. And 21, or 19, 1 to 5. And the latter three of these instances have reference to Paul. Not one of them repudiated the baptism of John. In not one instance was it repudiated. Then when you come to the council at Jerusalem and, uh, and the discussion over circumcision, and Paul was one of the leading personalities in this, and you remember the conclusion of the uh, council at Jerusalem is summed up for us in the 15th chapter, verses 28 and 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, farewell. Now, in this, this uh, uh, council, not once is baptism by water mentioned. Now, I know that thinking 
the other side of the point, it could very well be said that is significant. But it's significant to me from the side that we present. Not once was it mentioned here was an issue that arose about circumcision. The Apostle Paul could not tolerate that. A council of Jerusalem must be held. It must be settled that these Gentiles must not be circumcised. And baptism was not even mentioned. Then another thing in the conclusion. The great apostle who was set for the defense of the gospel, who challenged error at every possible turn, and we'll see that more clearly in the epistles tonight, every time he was confronted with it, he challenged it, he withstood it, and he had his comments to make upon it. He never challenged the baptism of John. He never challenged the practice of water baptism as it involved the disciples of our Lord or by the early church, and neither did he challenge the findings of the Council of Jerusalem as I've summed them up for you in verses 28 and 29. Now, um, uh, as I say, I'm just here stating my faith. Why do I say to a person when they come into one of the Baptist churches I've pastored and they say they want to join, why do we mention baptism? Because of the fact that I believe it's an act of obedience which expresses publicly by way of testimony to all who are there to see that they've already experienced an inward act. They have been born of the Spirit. They've been baptized into the body. They're a new creation of Jesus Christ. And the whole testimony surrounds the fact that in obedience to Jesus Christ, they have come to be baptized. Now, I just said recently where we're forming a brand new church in Mary. Those four people coming out of Methodist and every other kind of background you can think of were, were really on the defensive because they thought that this was sort of an initiation to the church. And so right away I calmed their fears by saying nothing like that. And I explained it to them as believers in Jesus Christ. It was just simply their public testimony to an already transpired inward act. And on that basis, I can testify three weeks ago we baptized all 15 of them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brother Davis. We'll hear now again from Mr. Stam, who will present his convictions regarding this, and then after his presentation, you'll have an opportunity to direct questions to any of the three. Brother Stam. Thank you. Now, in order to understand baptism of the, in the book of Acts, it seems to me we have to, again, say a word about the background. Let me first ask, or first read to you from 1 Corinthians 15, the first three verses. Now this is the gospel which Paul proclaimed, which I preach unto you, he writes to these Gentiles. In Galatians 2 he calls it that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. In Romans 2.16 and 16.25 and 1 Timothy 2 he calls it my gospel. Now, let's listen to this. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, saved by this gospel, as, of course, the Holy Spirit used it. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I shall never forget when, for the first time, I really began to see the truth of that wonderful good news. Christ died for our sins. Now, is this what the apostles, I'm talking about the twelve now, preached in the early part of the book of Acts. Let's first go, if you will, in your mind I think you can do this. Matthew 16, 21, it says he began, now Christ, near the time of his crucifixion, began to tell them how he must suffer and die and so on. Do you remember what Peter's response was? Not so. Peter rebuked him, said, oh, don't talk that way, Lord. Don't say you're going to die. So, Surely at that time, when Peter and the twelve had been working with Christ 
and preaching what I said this morning is called not the gospel of the cross, not the gospel of the of the death of Christ, but the gospel of the kingdom, of his reign, of his throne. When they preached that, they evidently didn't know that Christ was even going to die, much less what that would accomplish. Now, will you turn please to Luke chapter 9, verses 2 and 6. Luke 9, 2 and 6. Now the first verse says, He called his twelve disciples together. And by the way, gave them miraculous powers, as the rest of the verse says. I said to you that to hear the good news, you should ask, what good news? And you should do that when you study the Bible. When it says they preach the gospel everywhere, I have to look into the context to see what good news, what gospel. Now I contend, although I don't want to be contentious, just like you, my friend. Uh, I don't want to be contentious, but you let me. Okay. Uh, I want to. Con I contend, or I submit, that they did not preach the gospel that we preach today, and that men did not believe that to be saved. In First Corinthians 15, it says, "If you believe this, you're saved." But not with them. That was not yet revealed. Look, please, at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And uh, verses uh, 31 to 34. Now, he had already, in fact, twice before told them that he was going to die. Now, in the 31st verse, then, this is act, uh, Luke 18, 31, then Jesus said unto them, unto the twelve, I beg your pardon, let me read that again. He took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. It has even been predicted. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully, and treated, and spit upon. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood all of these things, of course. And this thing was perfectly clear to them. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. Read it there? No, you don't. You read just as you do on two previous occasions, three times in one verse. They understood none of these things. And this thing was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. Now he tells them, and before that in the ninth chapter, he said, let this thing sink down into your ears. I'm going to die and be raised again the third day and three times in the next verse. It says they didn't understand at all what he was talking about. So the point I'm getting at is that the gospel of the grace of God, the preaching of the cross as good news, has not yet come to pass. They preached the prophesied gospel of the kingdom, the good news that Messiah was going to reign. <laughs> now, when we come to Acts, say I forgot to look at the time. When did I start? 20 minutes ago? <laughs> Pardon me? Okay. Thank you very much. My clock is fancy. All right. When we come to the book of Acts, now did they immediately begin to see it? Many people think so. They say now we're on resurrection ground. Now the Lord has given his great commission to the apostles. And now, of course, they would go preaching the finished work of Christ and the gospel of the grace of God. Now, really, I think there needs to be a very careful rereading, even, of the so-called great commission. It's amazing what it doesn't say. And also amazing what it does say. It doesn't say one word about the death of Christ for salvation. Not, it doesn't even mention the gospel of the grace of God. It doesn't say that salvation was by the grace of God without works or without the law. It doesn't say one thing about going to heaven or a heavenly position. It doesn't say one thing about the body of Christ. If actually I am working under the Great Commission today, my message would be almost completely emaciated. They evidently were sent forth to preach again that same message they had been preaching, 
the gospel of the kingdom only there was now a historical addition the king had been crucified and Pilate had written over his cross this is Jesus the king of the Jews but now the king had been raised again from the dead now then when we come to the book of Acts what is their outlook it, again it's just as I said about the gospels this morning it is entirely earthly <clears throat> remember how they asked wilt thou therefore uh, I beg your pardon one day therefore were come together they asked of him saying wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel that kingdom that had been taken away from them and which was to be restored when Christ are you going to restore it now now if if amillennialism had been right that the church is the kingdom and is Israel he would have said yes wouldn't it and if Israel is cast away for good and Israel the kingdom is not going to be restored he would have said no wouldn't he but he didn't say yes or no he said it's not for you to know the time why because Christ was again this time not only was he again going to be proclaimed as king, but offered as king. Look please at Acts 2. Acts 2 and verses 31. Uh, let's see here. Uh, verses 30 and 31. He's speaking about David. And he says, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, David, that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. Now then, when you get to the third chapter, you have an even stronger indication that Christ was raised to sit on the throne of David. That is, that was the challenge that now was presented to Israel. He will, well, I'll read it to you. Verse 19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when, or as the margin here has it, that so the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. You've read about these times of refreshing in the Old Testament. The wolf and the lamb and the lion and the bear will all dwell together and all humanity will live together without any unkindness or meanness on anybody's part. Everybody will live for everybody else. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Now he says, if you'll repent, the times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things. Now, in other words, Peter then was still not preaching salvation through the cross, through faith in the cross. He was preaching the coming of Christ to reign and actually offering the return of Christ to Israel. There's more than that. What he had <clears throat> uh, commanded in the uh, during his earthly ministry about selling to, the, to one man, the rich young ruler, sell it you have and give to the poor. He said it to his ten followers in Matthew 10, 5 to 7. Don't take purse or script or anything. What you have should go to the poor. He said it to the multitudes of his followers in Luke 12, uh, the 33rd verse. Sell it you have and give to the poor. And here they actually do that. In the second chapter, you have them, uh, all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men. In the end of the fourth chapter, it says, neither was there any among them. Wait a minute, 32nd verse. The multitude of them that believed, over 5,000 people by now, were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them, any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things common and nobody says verse 33 neither was there any among them that lacked why well they were all filled with the spirit have you ever seen 5,000 people Christians all of one heart and one soul in your experience 500 
50. Five. But here were more than 5,000 of one heart and one, so much so, that they said, everything I have is yours. They all lived for each other because they were filled with the Spirit. Now then, this is still an earthly thing, a way of life on earth. Now, with this in mind, we turn to Acts 2. Did Peter in Acts 2 tell them, Christ died for your sins? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins will be forgiven, as Paul told the Philippian jailer. No, he did not. Neither did the commission under which he was sent. Say one thing about that. When they were pricked in their hearts and convicted and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then said Peter unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, I too have to conclude that that's water baptism. I think it is reading the white spaces when we say that it would say water, or probably would say water if it meant water. Now that's not necessarily the case, because water baptism was a practice being carried on at that time, and it was called sometimes just baptism. But the wording here, if you'll notice, is almost exactly the same as what we read about John the Baptist. We read it this morning. He preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. In John 1.33 he says, I, he that sent me to be to baptize with water. So that was surely water baptism. Then we read that Jesus himself baptized not, but through his disciples he baptized more than John did. Now in the Great Commission he sends them forth to baptize. It seems gratuitous to me. I'll explain that word after the but it seems gratuitous to me to say that now this must mean another baptism, especially since identification with Christ as Paul preaches it in the one body had not yet been revealed. Now, uh, furthermore, this is the same wording as John. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, not if you feel led, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and, that is, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now then, I submit that apart from that, you may read something into that and say, well, that means identification with Christ, but it doesn't say it. And uh, apart from this, you can read the whole chapter, and it says not one word about Christ's death in our behalf, or about our believing in his finished work for salvation. Quarter of our last five minutes, right? Okay. Now then, let's go to uh, Acts the 8th chapter. Here's a passage that is often used uh, to teach that you may or need not be baptized with water. I think, too, that this is a fallacious uh, interpretation of that passage. <coughs> Now let's see. Verse 33. This is Philip and the eunuch. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, uh, it is not said here. Uh, Philip did not say, you may be baptized or not as you like. He had already indicated that he did like to be baptized. The point was, he would have to believe before he would be allowed to be baptized. Get it? Let me read it again. As they went on their journey, this man said, what does hinder me to be baptized? Here's water. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, Thou mayest. That means didn't mean you may be baptized or not, but you may believe you may be baptized only if you believe with all thy heart. That is that fits in with the Great Commission. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now I can draw a parallel. For example, a man might say, "I like to be saved," and you know, I've been telling him about Christ and His finished work, and uh, I may very well say to him, "Well." If you believe with all your heart, you may be saved. 
Now that doesn't mean that he need not believe to be saved. It means he has to believe to be saved. But he, he will be saved only if he believes. And that, it seems to me, what this clearly teaches. Uh, Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Now, it seems to me that we have the first graduate. Now, don't forget, Paul's ministry and revelation was gradual, and there are many passages to prove this. Remember how he tells about his conversion, how the Lord said, You'll be a witness to those things of which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. And in 1 Corinthians, the uh, 11th chapter, he says, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then he tells how of, of uh, at least one that he had had and of others that he would have. So this was a gradual matter. We learn gradually too, do we not? We don't learn everything at once. Now, in the case of, of uh, Paul, it seems very, it would seem difficult for me to believe that he was not saved right there on the road to Damascus. It would seem to me that probably the great majority here who have read that story of how the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus uh, and, and made himself known to him, that Paul was saved right there. He immediately made himself the bond slave of Christ there. Uh, but did you notice, it is when he gets to Damascus that he was then baptized. The first case that I know of where there wasn't the message and baptism immediately so that he might be saved. Then the Lord said, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. And I've fully agreed this morning that is a typical washing, of course. Water in itself doesn't wash away sin. But there was the question, Israel might, what if Israel still accepted? And that's why baptism continued. I'm sorry the time is up, but I will just mention yet uh, Acts 10, verses 43 and 44. Here were the <coughs> believers in Cornelius' house, and it says, they spake with tongues, you see, and glorified God. And Paul says, my, these have received the Holy Spirit as well as we. Who can forbid water that they should be baptized? That was a very natural thing to do, wasn't it? But still it's a departure from the program of the Great Commission after the raising up of Paul. Here they believed and received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit took the message right out of Peter's hand. While I yet spake, you see, this happened. And then Peter says, Who can uh, forbid water that these should be baptized? And from then on to the later on in Acts, there are other cases of water baptism. Maybe we'll have a chance later to deal with that of Christus and Gaius and those mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians 1. All right, anyone have a question? If you don't have a question, I'll turn them loose on each other. They've got a thousand <laughs> questions for each other. Tomorrow, uh, Brother Glenn, the fact that just recently had baptized 15 people into your church. Uh, oh, I didn't baptize them into the church. Excuse me, baptized 15 people at, church. Church. at your church, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, my question is, if you were to ask any one of those individuals who were baptized, mm -hmm. if, or just exactly why they were baptized, would they have been able to describe what you said was the picture that they had, that their baptism had portrayed to the world. I'm sorry I didn't bring them with me. The reason why I say that is because of the fact there were only 15 people altogether. And I'm very thorough in my procedures. It took me from half past one on Sunday afternoon to almost evening service time, Monday night, because we're using a rented facility, Tuesday night after prayer meeting till 20 minutes past 11, then Wednesday night from immediately after the supper hour till almost midnight to have all these people squared away on us. In other words, it was no quick uh, uh, jubilee like they're doing. That's why I said when I opened my remarks, 
that there are uh, approaches on this on the part of a lot of Baptist churches that scare me to death. I wanted to make sure that these people knew exactly and precisely on the basis of a careful comparison of Scripture with Scripture, as I understand the Word of God, that they knew exactly and precisely what they were doing, so much so that they could give a heart testimony right out of that experience. But this is an exception rather than a rule, then. I will, I will concede, uh, if I may have just one moment to answer that, uh, Mr. Moderator, I have a brother and a sister-in-law and a niece and a nephew who break my heart. They went forward in a church in Illinois uh, State, Pennsylvania, where they play the numbers game. And if anyone needs explanation on that, I'm glad to give it. That's all they do. And my whole family went forward, were baptized, and I was there to see them, and I thought they were truly saved. I was back there for four and a half months recently. They don't evidence the fact that they've ever heard of Jesus Christ. And this kind of thing frightens me half to death because they're more difficult to reach than ever. And so I believe that we have no justification for any of our action unless these people are thoroughly instructed in what they are going to do. It must be their testimony. Yes, yes, they've got to be able to give it as a testimony. For if they can't do it, they wouldn't want, I wouldn't take them down into a pool. I would like to explore this thing about baptism being, water baptism being a testimony. If water baptism is a testimony to our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection, why is it done only once? And is there any scripture that says it was meant as a testimony to his burial and death, burial, and resurrection? Why is it done only once? Well, in the first place, it's only done only once. Some churches do it once, others do it three times forward, and some three times backward, and according to some of my brethren as a Baptist preacher, I haven't even been baptized. But uh, my position on that is that we only die once, and we're only buried once, and we don't, we don't, we're not buried three times in succession like that. We don't die three times. But you don't agree that this is your death and burial. You, no, I You say it's a symbol of it. It's a testimony of it. It's an outward testimony to an inward reality. Should we testify to it only once then? To a limited group of people? No, our life goes on to testify. This is the question the brother asked. Rome says, says with the mouth confession is made and of course the life. But what good is my mouth if the life doesn't bag it up? Right. What is the is the water baptism ceremony a part of my conduct? I think as people look at me, they see whether I am in practice identified with Christ. I don't see how being baptized in water would make any difference one way or another. Many people who are unsaved are baptized with water, and that's no testimony to there. I just touched on that. There is no, I want to make this perfectly clear, there is no power in the water, there is no cleansing in the water, it's not looked upon as a cleansing testimony, it is strictly practiced as a testimony of one's realization that they have been baptized into Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.27, and an act of their identification and their obedience to him. Barbara? Uh, in the book of Acts, if the uh, instances where it does say that the uh, believers were baptized, if that in fact is water baptism, it took place immediately after they believed. And uh, I'm wondering why they were not indoctrinated as to the picture that it was supposed to portray as uh, Baptist churches do today. Can I comment just a moment, please? I guess I'm the only one here that took Acts 2.38 as an indication of identification with Christ. That may be gratuitous, and I accept that with a lot of love. But it's still what I believe. Uh, in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, here is water, why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, it's okay. It's legal to do so if you want to do it. And he baptized him. There are places in the world today pretty well occupied with a lot of missionary activity, maybe as some of you know. And there are places in the world today where believers need, they, they demand that it's a fabulously important thing that they be publicly water baptized simply as the public testimony of their coming out of something. And missionaries have gone to those fields who are opposed to any form of water baptism and have been unable, but, you know, they have to say to those 
people in those pagan countries the same thing Philip said to the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, if you believe with all your heart, it's legal. You can do it. And they want to do it as a testimony of the community. We come to the baptism of Paul in Acts chapter 9. God said to Paul, I'm going to send you into Damascus. You're going to see Ananias. He went to Ananias and he said, Saul's coming to see you. And Ananias said, you're out of your mind. You, you don't understand what this guy does. And God said, no, wait a minute, Ananias. I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for me. I want you to go and preach to him. I want you to tell him he's going to get two things. His sight and the Holy Spirit. And the very next verse says, And Paul stood up and the scales fell from his eyes and he received his sight and he was baptized. Now God said he'd get two things. He'd get his sight and he'd get the Holy Spirit. And he got two things. He got his sight and baptism. Now I say it's more than gratuitous to say that's one of them. When the Holy Spirit declares without any argument that two things are going to happen to Paul. He's going to get his sight and he's going to get the Spirit. That's what he got. He got his sight and he was identified with Christ through the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't use water there. In the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, it is modified with the word water. And Philip declares to the eunuch that it's permitted by law to be baptized with water if he believes with all of his heart. Acts 2.38 says that if you repent, be baptized full of the remission of sins. But it's epi in the Greek. It means that the sins have already been remitted. That's why you're baptized. Unless the sins have been remitted, you're not baptized. It doesn't say you have to be baptized for the remission of sins. It, in fact, says dramatically in the Greek, you can't be unless they are remitted. But the baptism is upon the basis of remitted sins. That's why it's epic. Now, in the case of these believers, the same thing is true. They were baptized with the Spirit because sins were remitted. Well, I threw in my nickel. All right, please later, you have a question. Oh, this is why Oh, yes, he baptized some, but uh, 
that's what I said. It was gradually revealed to him. <coughs> the thing was gradually unfolded, and you find departures. The first departure is his own baptism. He's uh, baptized after he's saved. The second departure is creating his baptism. He's baptized after he's saved and received the Holy Spirit. Were there any in Acts that were baptized before they were saved? No, no. No, not baptized. Yes, that's right. Baptized before they were saved. Acts two thirty one. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And may I say, I cannot accept for a moment. I think that is uh, something that comes from wish rather than from really searching what the scriptures say. It does not say uh, you'll be baptized because your sins have been remitted. It says repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And a great majority. Of translators say so, and the many translators of the greatest Bible ever, the greatest version ever produced, the King James Version, says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins.